All right, welcome to the conversation. So uh, is the Biden administration and the Democratic Party doing enough to uh, deliver for black voters? Uh, my answer is a definitive no. Uh, but the issue overall is more complicated than that. So we're gonna bring in Terrence Woodbury. He is the CEO of His Strategies, uh, data scientist. And uh, Terrence, first, welcome. And thank you so much for having me, Jake. No problem. Uh, you guys had a focus group with black voters, is that right? That's right, we are in constant focus groups and polling with black voters, keeping our finger on the pulse there of the most loyal voters in the Democratic coalition. Yeah, so um, before we get into are they doing enough, are they not, is it messaging, is it substance? Uh, I'm super interested in what the focus group said, so what did they say? Yeah, so we see the same thing in the data that we're seeing in the focus groups that uh, that Democrats and Joe Biden more specifically are experiencing a precipitous erosion of this of the Biden coalition that was anchored by black voters. We see his approval rating has dropped now by 10 points amongst black voters just in the last 90 days. And even more significantly amongst black voters under 50, who we know are amongst the, the more likely voters to, uh, to, to, to fall off during a midterm election where we see where we see political participation drop significantly. And black voters in focus groups are ex are expressing uh, frustration, uh, crises of confidence about whether or not Democrats will really deliver on some of their top issues. Okay, so that's amazing information, so give me more. Um, so what are the reasons for their frustration? Uh, do they say specifics, do they talk about generalities? Uh, why are they peeling off and getting super frustrated with Biden? I mean, you know, Jenk, this is largely a uh, more of a governing problem than a messaging problem. You know, Democrats have in fact delivered on a lot of the priorities uh, that that black voters showed up in overwhelming numbers in 2020 to advance. They have not done enough, but they are also not getting credit for what they have done. And this is where uh, there's there's quite a messaging gap when you look at. Police reform, you know, and I tell black voters about what the Justice Department has done to ban chokeholds and no-knock warrants amongst federal officers, um, even uh, launching the uh, um, uh, uh, pattern and practice investigation, pattern and practice investigations more than any other administration in their first term. They've already done in their first year. Black voters just aren't aware of that, and they get uh, significantly more supported when they learn about it. Um, they're not getting the administration is not getting credit for the significant uh, efforts that they have made in reducing the spread of COVID, specifically in distributing the vaccine uh, equitably in a way that has closed, completely eliminated the mortality gap between Black people and White people from from COVID infections, <clears throat> and and so on and so on on issues of climate, on uh, economic recovery, and and and. Um, and even in, in, in their most recent investments through the infrastructure bill, black voters just are not aware of this progress, and they're calling it all a little uh, too, too short and too short and and and, and too too long to get to. Yeah, Terrence, uh, there's a great reason for that. So this is not clear cut whether it's just messaging or substance. Uh, the reality is the Biden administration, in my opinion, sucks on both. Uh, and so on the things that they have done well that you're talking about here. They have a complete, they're completely incapable of delivering that message. 
Why, why don't you say it? Why don't you talk about it? Why don't you do a news conference? Why don't you create a controversy around it? They don't do it because they it would might hurt the feelings of their, of their beloved, beloved Republican colleagues. So they are the world's worst messengers, I will grant you that. On the other hand, Terrence, you have to admit it's also a substance problem. So yes, look, chokeholds, that's a tiny win because the reality is chokeholds were actually banned in most places. The cops still do the chokeholds even though they're banned. And so that is not a big substantive win at all. The pattern of practice is more substantive and and you know, and there they've got that message is out to no one. No one, right? That's but a, but Terrence, exactly right. but more importantly, they haven't even done voting rights. So when you haven't done voting rights, and that is a mountain of an issue, it's a little hard to brag about the pimple that you did do. No, that's exactly right, Jenk. And, and I think that the that the reason they are not carrying a more assertive message about this points to a larger problem in the Democratic Party. It's a debate. That we have seen taking place publicly, and that is, you know, the false choice of should Democrats advance an economic agenda or should they respond to the overwhelming racism and insidious dog whistles that we're hearing from Republicans? And that is a false choice. And in fact, when they hear this silence, or even worse, appeasement, like we heard from the president when he talked about, you know, the 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 justice system doing what it was supposed to do in response to Rittenhouse. Or when we see the erosion of black support in Virginia after after Terry McAuliffe was all but silent on issues of race and critical race theory, that this is a those are value signals to black voters. That is Democrats sending a value, a value signal on what they hold important. And frankly, their their silence on these issues is deafening. And it's not just a moral imperative, Jane. This is a this is a, a strategic imperative. Democrats have an opportunity to not own, to, to begin to win on issues of race by leaning into an affirmative and an aspirational vision of diversity in America. We know exactly what Republicans believe about diversity. It's bad. Close the borders, keep out the black and brown people, lock up more of them, Muslim bans. I mean, we know what they want to slow down the diversity in America in order to make it great again. But what do Democrats believe about diversity? And leaning into that really does does present an opportunity to to speak to the number one issue of their most loyal voters. And that's just, those are not just issues of black voters. Those are issues of young voters that we can actually mobilize the most passionate activists on the left the same way Republicans are mobilizing the most passionate racists on the right. And I'm not sure why Democrats don't recognize that opportunity and really lean into some of these issues. So this is a nonstop debate about should we fight Republicans on social issues or economic issues? The answer is the most obvious thing in the world, both. It's it's not that complicated, you have the bully pulpit. Trump used it 18 times a day to attack on every front. And Biden uses it zero times on zero issues to attack Republicans on zero 
social or economic issues. So we say both, he says neither. Uh, Political just had an article last week about how Biden absolutely refuses to attack Republicans. And so, yeah, gee, I wonder why nobody knows what you're up to and you don't get credit for the small things that you did. And you surrender nonstop on Rittenhouse. Oh, The jury was fantastic, yay, Rittenhouse. What an awful statement by Biden. And Kamala Harris's statement wasn't any better. You haven't done anything on voting rights. And, And Terrence, when you go to police reform, they ask Republican permission. Hey, Lindsey Graham, Tim Scott, can we please have police reform? And the Republicans are like, oh, yeah, yeah, negotiate with us for a year, and then maybe we'll give you police reform. Ha, ah, just kidding. We're Republicans. Of course, we're not going to give you police reform. So, I mean, Terrence, how do they? I'm surprised more African Americans haven't pulled away because this is a joke. It's insulting. You're insulting our intelligence by pretending you're doing enough when, like, it doesn't it seem absolutely clear they care the Biden administration cares more about its Republican colleagues than do they do about black voters. Look, I want to make no mistake about it. I do believe that Democrats, at least the Democrats that I work with, you know, are on the right side of issues of race and of justice. But it doesn't matter if you're silent on those issues, you know. Uh, when we when we talk about harnessing the overwhelming energy on the left, I often point to you know I, I encourage the, the the Democratic candidates that I, that I work with to look towards the the summer of unrest and the summer of 2020 when we saw the complexion of the protest change when we saw uh, you know a movement evolve from black people versus the police to a movement of young people versus racism. Those were young people that were taken to the streets in every city in America. And those young people, many of them were either not voters or they were single issue voters. Their single issue is racism. And so yes, we, we, you know, that, that, that energy, that passion that we saw from those young voters actually resulted in political participation. We saw young people's voter registration double in Wisconsin after the after the protests in Kenosha. We saw young people's participation in Democratic primaries double in Georgia when those protests coincided with the Democratic primaries there. And so we, we see this, this, uh, this model from Republicans where they are throwing red meat to their base, throwing red meat to, 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 to white, rural, non-college educated voters that are the most anxious about diversity and in Virginia, we saw that red meat in the form of critical race theory. But Democrats are not throwing the same red meat to the most passionate activists on the left. And you're right, some of those issues, some of that red meat does present itself in the form of police reform, of voting rights, of critical race theory. We can't, our response to critical race theory can't be, well, we don't teach that in schools. That is a complete dismissal of what black voters and young voters have told us is their number one issue, and that is racism. And so this is a, this is a challenge, but it really does present an opportunity to, to reassemble that coalition. Um, and, and the third part of that coalition, and this is really important, is that these issues of race and justice are not unique to black voters, and they're not unique to young voters. That in fact, what repelled many college educated white uh, suburban women away from Donald Trump was insidious racism. It was division. And so we have an opportunity as we lean into diversity as our strength, as we present a rationale for how diversity in fact makes the country stronger. 
we're not just talking to black people. We're not just talking to young people. We're talking to the broader coalition. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that I have to convince Democrats that anti-racism is a majority opinion. You know, we're not convincing them to take an unpopular opinion. Most Americans are in fact anti-racist. Yeah. Let's talk to them and let's give them a reason to support Democrats in the next election. Uh, honestly, Terrence, the, the corporate Democrats are nearly hopeless. Uh, it, they're afraid of their own shadow. They're completely afraid of the Republicans. They're afraid of their own donors. And and so the simplest messages that have overwhelming popularity, they will not do under penalty of law. But now, last thing, as quickly as we can, you talked about younger voters a couple times, and it's really interesting. That's to me more interesting. So two different questions about that. One, are you seeing that the under, you said under 50, the under 50 voters, are they, how much more solidly progressive are they as opposed to the older voters? So we have a real opportunity here. You know, during during that summer of unrest, we started doing some polling and even following some by the Kaiser Family Foundation that showed that 80% of young voters of all races believe that black people are mistreated by the police. That 79% believed it was harder to get ahead in America if you were black. That 82% believe that America should do more to reduce the effects of racism. Democrats aren't winning 82% of young people or 80% or 79%. In fact, in many states across the South, they're breaking even. Joe Biden was at 5347 with with voters under the age of under the age of 40. And so uh, while they while they do align with 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 Democrats on issues of race, especially being the majority minority generation. You know, this is the internet generation. The melting pot generation, there is an opportunity as Republicans continue to make racism, explicit racism, a central theme of their platform. Democrats have an opportunity to, yeah. to, 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 to begin to, to, build, to, to build that coalition of young people right. up and down the ballot. So Terrence, one last thing then. So yeah, they have that opportunity, they'll blow that opportunity, it's the usual stuff. But how about within African Americans? Are younger voters who are African American, more progressive or much more progressive than older African American voters? No, in fact, unfortunately, the the one of the greatest the greatest determining factors of whether or not a black person will support a Republican is their age. The younger the black voter is, the more likely they are to to defect to Republicans. This is not this is not a a product of them being more conservative. It is a product of them being more cynical towards Democrats and more open to a to a receptive Republican message. And so we do have work to do there. Our, our, the coalition of black voters that once voted for Democrats at 90%, it is splintering, especially amongst younger voters. And that was not unique to Donald Trump. Even David Perdue doubled his margins of black voters under the age of 40. Granted, he doubled them from 6% to 12%. But in a state that was decided by 10,000 votes, that is enough to determine the margin of difference. So, but Terrence, one last thing though, but within the Democratic Party, um, so there's a giant rift between the establishment and progressives. The establishment says, kiss Republican ass, don't do much. Uh, and progressives say, no, fight them, fight them on social issues, etc., cetera, and, and economic issues. I don't know that you tested that. So I'm curious if you did test that, if you've seen mm-hmm. 
the generational divide there. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is where we see the energy of the of the of the the activist wing of the Democratic Party. You know that that is exactly who we saw in the coalition that was protesting in the summer of 2020. It is young people, young people of color, and so that so you know we have to lean into that. And and one thing that we have to stop doing immediately is oppositioning our activists. We have to stop saying stuff like. Uh, we don't teach critical race theory, or we oppose defunding the police, or just being completely silent on issues of voting rights. We have to begin to uh, welcome our most passionate activists into our coalition the same way the right is 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 embracing their, their craziest and most radical activists. No matter how uh, uh, unappealing it is to the general public, they are harnessing that energy. Well, our activists are on the right side of history, and we have to start welcoming them into the Democratic coalition. Yeah, and there's a very, very good reason for that because corporate Democrats hate their base. They they dislike their base way more than they dislike their Republican colleagues, and they are in love with their donors. And so, and the donors do not like any of the progressive talk. So they will, they are siding with their donors, and it is going to absolutely destroy the country because it's going to hand it over to Republicans who are at this point have lost their minds. And so we are headed to a clear disaster 22 and 24. I mean, look, it's not hyperbole to say 24 could end the country. If Trump or Tucker Carlson wins, they are actual fascists, they will end democracy. And it's because corporate Democrats were in love, where they were in love with their corporate donors, and they and they sided with them over their actual base. And so that is the destruction of the Democratic Party, brought to you by the corrupt leadership of the Democrats. All right, Terrence Woodbury, we appreciate the facts, and and thank you for coming on and sharing those. Thank you so much. I'll be on anytime, Jim. All right, back on the conversation. In Baltimore, an officer named Sean Souter was killed. And obviously, there was a dramatic event, and the cops were looking for the killers. But wait till you see who the killers might be. Now, in order to talk about that, we're going to bring on Jeremy Eldridge, who's representing the Souter family, but also Sonia Sohn, who has done a really interesting documentary for HBO about this called The Slow Hustle. Sonia and Jeremy, welcome. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Uh, how are you guys? Great. Thank, right. you Thank you for having us. Uh, no problem. Uh, I was telling Sonia before we got started, uh, The Wire was my favorite show of all time. Uh, and and I think you're probably the at least the fourth actor that's on uh, from The Wire uh, on TYT. Um, so, uh, but well, I was also telling her I did not know this story. And it is a dramatic, unbelievable story. So guys, before we do anything else, I wanna show the trailer for the documentary because it gives people a sense of what's happening here. And and then we gotta break it down because I'm super curious what you guys know and I don't yet. So let's watch the trailer first. I got one officer down, I got one officer down. Detective Sean Souter lived and died a hero. Sean's love showed me life can be good. I was heartbroken, losing a partner, losing a friend. My husband did not deserve to die, and no one deserves to get away with this. 
Police believe the killer is still in Baltimore. From the beginning, we just sense foul play. We were under the impression that a suspect was on the loose in the community. We were held hostage. You cannot go in there. The Baltimore Police Department is one of the most corrupt police forces in the country. The regular people in Harlem Park had nothing to do with any of this. But the abuse that they were willing to subject them to. They were offering a giant reward and tearing apart the city. For days, this investigation operated on a false assumption. How come this department can't get it right? I don't know why this is happening, but something's happening. Okay, so wow. Uh, Sonia, let me start with you. You're the director of the movie. Uh, so, do you, I don't, on the one hand, I don't want to give away the movie, I guess, but on the other hand, I got to ask you, who do you think did it? <laughs> You're going to start there, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm really not. Um, I'm really not divulging to you know my perspective too much here, before, especially before the movie um, streams and airs. Um, I you know I will say that everyone on the team probably swung one way, one way or the other. That we might not have all swung through all three theories, but we did. All of us. All of us had a head turn at one point or another. Yeah, in the process. yeah, and we have had um, a couple of ex-Baltimore police officers on the show as well, and they do not leave you with the impression that you should trust the police in Baltimore. Uh, so uh, that that is, a, so I want to talk more about that in a second. But but let me bring in uh, Jeremy here. You're representing the Souter family. Who do they have? A theory on who did it? Well, I'm not just representing the Sutter family. I was actually Sean's lawyer. And having been a former Baltimore City prosecutor and then also his attorney through the entirety of what we were dealing with with the US Attorney's Office, I believe that he was murdered. And I believe that he was murdered interrupting a young man that was grabbing his drug stash. I think there's been two witnesses that certainly put a lot of evidence into the ether that. Sean walked into really just a random act of violence and he was overpowered and killed. It certainly can be built as the Pelican brief, but the Baltimore City Police Department did such a deficient investigation that unfortunately we were unable to follow up on a lot of the, what would have been very timely and potentially accurate leads. So, but was he going to testify against eight other Baltimore cops the next day? Is that, is that right? Yes, he was. He was going to testify. It wasn't against all eight. It was actually against Wayne Jenkins and then Gondo and one other officer. But there were other officers that had already provided testimony to the same effect. And Sean was going to say that he recovered drugs. And other officers were going to say that Sean was essentially used as a patsy by those dirty cops to recover the drugs because he was the only one that didn't know that the drugs had been planted there, which is really sad. And obviously, we came to learn a lot later. So, Sonia, uh, I assume one of the theories is that the cops he was going to testify against were the ones who did it. Um, so, what do you think is the potential validity of that theory? Well, I mean, being that the case is a mystery, I mean, I think all all theories, you know, are on the table right now. Um, I think until you disprove, you know, any of them, you know, they're not, um, they're all, I guess, have some level of validity. I mean, I think the one that's least 
Um, you know, it, and and I'm saying that if you're watching, if you're looking at the case from a bird's eye view, and including just the vast array of people, you know, of humanity who could fall on either side of those theories. Okay, um, I, you know, one of the theories that you know is 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 least likely. You know, I think the suicide theory. I think people have a hard time believing. But if you're if you're from a law enforcement perspective, and I mean, you could quite you know easily see that. I suppose. So that's why I say. Um, there is some validity to them all, you know. You know, within the film, the context of the film, it's trying to sort of present this picture, so that you know audiences can actually have the discussion that we're having now. Um, and you know, yeah, I think that conversation in context um, really helps um, highlight the the truth of one theory over the other and the ridiculousness of some of the facts and aspects of the case um, and how they were handled over others. So you know we mentioned the Sonia was on the wire and they covered the Baltimore police uh, and it's it's just that was fictional, right? But it was based on on what might be the case in Baltimore. But then we had cops on here from Baltimore, ex-cops. And mm -hmm. uh, you know one of them said, look, when we were assigned to white neighborhoods, we had an unofficial quota and we weren't gonna arrest people in white neighborhoods because we might get in trouble. It might be a judge's son, etc. So we would just go to the black neighborhoods anyway and just round people up. And <laughs> and then another one was actually a truth teller and was a good cop. And he had stopped one of the other police officers from beating someone to death. And he knew that the guy had a personal vendetta against the guy he was beating. And he reported mm -hmm. that in because it was a crime. The mm -hmm. other police threw, it appears, threw a rat on his doorstep, slashed his tires, smashed his car, intimidated him, etc. So Jeremy, mm -hmm. I'm curious about your perspective because you said you were a former Baltimore City prosecutor. I wouldn't trust a Baltimore cop if my life depended on it. I would ask you, are there any good apples in Baltimore? There definitely are. I mean, for instance, the officer that you just mentioned in the, the rat story, that was an officer that I knew. So, and I've seen the other officers that have come on your show. No, I think the problem is there are actually a lot of good police officers in Baltimore City that are really doing the best job they can to investigate the 350 plus murders that we have a year. But when you have a smaller group of really bad apples, it makes it impossible. You know, I go to community meetings, I interact with my clients and their families being a defense attorney, they don't hate the police. The problem is, is that the police misconduct that has been allowed to run rampant over the last decade overshadows the need for law enforcement in a city that frankly is plagued by a very large murder rate. I mean, we have a, a viral repeat offender with 22% of all murders being committed by people that are on probation and parole. So there are good police, there's a need for policing, but it has to be tempered by getting rid or alleviating these police misconduct that frankly has been a plague to this city. But it's not just like police misconduct where they're stealing money, etc. The problem is more systemic than that. So, and obviously this is not, nobody should straw man here. There's no extremes. Is there actual crime in Baltimore? Of course, there's a lot of murders in Baltimore. There's no question about that. Do you need police? Of course you do. Just because you need police doesn't mean the police system is right. Right, and and the way the police conduct themselves in Baltimore is right, um, and so. Uh, but Sonia, to what degree do you think it's 
hey, we've got this group here that was doing some clearly illicit activities, criminal activities. What percentage of the problem is that as opposed to the systemic issue of police abusing African Americans, targeting African Americans unjustly and unfairly? You know, it's such a, um, a complex, um, it's just such a complex equation. And of course, it's systemic, it's historical, you know. Um, and now that's common knowledge. So I don't, you know, I, I can, I can, I can just say that and we can move on. Um, but um, the answer to that is really the question to me. Um, and you know what the restructure is, or the the or the you know abolition of this structure and the building of a new one, or what have you, where we can extricate um, this level of um, of of corruption. You know, I don't know. I mean, I think humanity is what it is. I think people in power are going to be tempted. Um, and abuse that power because just you know they're just human beings who who are formed that way for whatever reason. Um, but clearly, we don't have proper structure and constraints in place um, to protect you know society and and um, now from what feels like um, you know more villains than you know um, quote unquote good apples you know. But you know it's very hard. It's very very challenging when. Um, you know when you're planting a seed, and you know when you when you know you're planting a seed, and you know in soil that's you know not cultivated and cultured. Do you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that that's not going on in Baltimore, and that there is an effort being made. You know, and I think we're all in this together. Um, I don't want to take away anything from folks who are trying to figure that out. Um, I know that I tend to have a much more radical kind of way of an approach um, to life in my perspective. So, you know, I want to be clear about that. Um, but I think part of doing these documentary, documentaries and sort of bringing these stories to light really, um, <clears throat> and bringing these reflections, you know, um, to light. Um, is so that we can sort of um, look into the mirror and just say, okay, if it's not working, then what is? Because we don't have to stay in the "it's not working" conversation. Yeah, you know. Well, that's the um, problem. Then let's not. We if we get stay, into yeah, if we get ahead, into sorry. politics, we won't get out because the Republicans don't want any reform, and the Democrats are completely incompetent and are are never going to push for real reform. So, I mean, we, there there are no there's plenty of solutions. They'll never do any of them. Uh, you have to wait a long time for progressives to get in power so that they could actually push reform. Hey, there's the name of the film. <laughs> <laughs> the slow hustle, there you go. That's right, what yeah. D say, you know, and you know, unfortunately, but I also think that there's some on the ground, you know, there's just some fledgling or, or some efforts that are small right now or, or, or maybe, you know, not. Um, not getting as much attention that maybe in, in 10 years or so, um, we're gonna start to see some, some I'm, I'm hoping some some new ideas come forward, you know, that actually have some meat on the bones. Um, I, I have to believe in that. Okay, last thing real quick, guys. 
So look, as you could probably tell from this conversation, I don't have a very high opinion of police culture overall in the country. <laughs> so, but I am curious your guys take, do you think Baltimore Police Department is worse or significantly worse than policing in the rest of the country? Or no, it's about the same. You know, I'm gonna give that to Jeremy. You know, let me give you give give that to you first. Well, let me just say, you know, I, I was a prosecutor in the Baltimore City State's Attorney's Office. I'm obviously a defense attorney in Baltimore City now. I think that the one thing we do have going for us that that in somewhat shapes the question you're asking is that what have we done to improve the situation? And the Maryland legislature actually enacted police reform this last session and allowed for defense attorneys like myself access to those employment files. So one of the one of the biggest problems we had in Baltimore City was when we were dealing with someone like Wayne Jenkins, we couldn't get access to all of the bad things that people would accuse them of. But with this change in the law, we now get access to those records. That's what's going to change the culture of the police department. That's what's gonna change the culture of courtrooms. That's what's gonna change the culture which in the judicial system. And I think, frankly, I think that's the spark that Sonia alludes to. And I think you'll see some of that, at least in the film, when you see people excited about some of these changes. The police department is not better than it was before. It, I feel as though they completely betrayed Sean and his family, and I've been very vocal about that. But I don't necessarily want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and we have to find a way. And we have a lot of good people in Baltimore that are trying to force the police department to evolve, modernize, and we're doing that vis-a-vis the court system. And I think that can be done. Maybe I'm the eternal optimist, but I'm unwilling to let that go because my clients, frankly, my clients' lives are in jeopardy, and so I have to force that issue. Okay, Sonia, last word here. Uh, and we'll take a super serious issue and, and end it in a goofy way. Uh, if I did uh, March Madness brackets of worst police departments in the country, uh, and the oh, finals were Baltimore versus Chicago, uh, who wins? Oh my lord, don't give that to me. Because yeah. <laughs> I love sports, and now you take it, take it one of my like hobbies, one of the things I find joy. You put it, you put it in a place where it's kind of triggery. I don't know what answer I'm gonna give you. <laughs> All right. Oh, I'll yeah, let you off the hook on that one. That's my head up, dude. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, look, you gotta watch the slow hustle. Uh, it's on the same channel The Wire was. <laughs> the Wire was a fictional depiction, but unfortunately altogether too real. Uh, and The Slow Hustle was unfortunately deadly real. Uh, and uh, and it's an amazing story, so make sure you check that out when it comes out uh, imminently on HBO. Uh, Sonia Stone, Jeremy Eldridge, thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Mm, and thank you for having me and Jeremy. Thanks. Thank